This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Environmental Protection Agency will bring employees back to the office starting in May. The American Federation of Government Employees worked a deal for its members to gradually come in over the course of four pay periods. EPA is also promising routine telework, though. For details, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with Bethany Dreyfus, the president of AFGE Local 1236, and with Joyce Howell, AFGE Council 238's chief negotiator for the future of work. You hear her first. It's kind of like um, when you get a new car. You don't take a new car and put it on a 10,000-mile road trip, do you? It spends a little bit of time kind of breaking it in. I think this is, with all the other safety measures and the COVID safety plan that the EPA has to implement, I think it's probably smart to kind of take small steps about until, like, you're at the full reentry operations, because I don't want anyone to think for one second we have not been at full operations for this entire time. We have. Okay, that's an important point there. Bethany, any thoughts on office reentry, how that's going to look for the local 1236? Sure. I mean, I think it's probably similar across the country that we are, we're slated to start reentering on May 2nd, but we're reentering with a very different set of tools than when we come in for how often we're in the office, what the office looks like. And I think the ramp up is going to be helpful because we don't know exactly what the office is going to look like now that we have people using remote work and telework more commonly. And we also have tools to be able to have a hybrid workplace that are going to be available to us that really were not as commonly available when we left the office in March 2020. People are ready to come in, but they're ready to use the tools that we have put in our agreement to make sure that they can have work-life balance and keep themselves safe during COVID. All the other things that we set up in order to come back in a better place when we start to come back in May. I probably have some sense of these tools that you're describing, but what are some of these tools that EPA employees are, are now armed with to you know, ensure a hybrid workforce kind of environment that they've been familiar with for the past two years? Well, so for individual employees, there's the availability of remote work, which is essentially 100% telework, where you're continuing to work from an alternative work location, and then increased availability of telework. AFGE had pretty limited telework back in March 2020 when we left the office, and now we have up to remote work available. So people will be able to use those tools not just to accommodate work-life balance, but also to use when it's necessary for, say, a pandemic. Or you and I were talking at the beginning of this before Joyce got on about smoke There are times when it's not necessarily safe to commute into the office in the Bay Area, and it will be great to be able to use those tools to continue working from home. So we, of course, have all of the computer tools that have allowed us to have remote communication with our colleagues and outside of the agency and folks from other parts of the agency across the country, and we'll be able to continue using those. And it will look a little different when we're also We also have some people in the office, and it'll take a little bit of time to get used to, I think, what that looks like when we start coming in, which is, again, why it's nice that there's a ramp up and it's not just suddenly everyone is in. Yeah, that continuity operations is not just pandemics. I mean, the the wildfires, I think that's a prime example of how the agency can still keep running even when really anything happens. I just want to say that reflects on the success of long-term government plans starting after 9-11 to be able to run the government if basically five things all happened at once. 
And so those seeds were planted. I think that's one of the reasons why we were able to be so nimble and also the flexibility of, I think, the EPA workforce and being able to quickly adapt without too many aches and pains to remote work. And what's so great is that we're carrying those tools forward with us because I think it does make us more flexible and able to respond to the real world and what's going on. But also at the same time, it reflects the work life is now which is a great way to attract the best talent to EPA. Okay, great. Well, I understand that after this ramp-up period, EPA employees are going to be having some conversations with their supervisors and their managers about, I guess, a new telework agreement for the foreseeable future. What kind of expectations does AFGE have in terms of how many days an employee is able to telework? Well, the the fundamental concept is uh, people who have portable work should be able to port that work to a telework site, whether it be their home or another location. And I think that's a concept with which I believe the agency agrees. And the same thing with remote work. If people have fully portable work that does not require them to come to the office on a routine basis, then there doesn't seem to be a justification for increasing their carbon footprint by commuting into the office and occupying office space when they don't have to. That, of course, dovetails quite nicely into this particular agency, which is EPA, Protecting Human Health and Environment, and furthering our mission, basically, in the manner that we work. You know, as far as what you're seeing, a healthy swath of the EPA workforce should be able to work remotely, you know, come into the office seldomly if they need to. What's the average use of telework that we could expect to see for the next couple of years? I think the agency needs to, you know, take some time to figure out how much remote work and telework is going to be used by employees. And I think employees are going to figure out what works for them. You know, people do request the arrangement at first, but there is room to change it around if they need to. And There was a survey early on, I'd say about a year ago, where the agency asked people how much they expected to come into the office. And I think that it's changed quite a bit since then because people's understandings of COVID have changed and understandings of how much they want to be in the office have changed. (laughs) After a year of COVID, it feels different than after two years of COVID. And I expect that it's going to continue to change as people start to actually commute in. So I don't know that we know exact numbers, although I think that we would expect where remote work was a really rare situation at the agency before this, that we would have a good percentage of people who are able to just continue to do their work completely remotely and people will take advantage of the ability to use more telework. Sorry, I don't have a specific number, but again, I think that it's really going to evolve and people, even on an individual basis, will have to look to see what it is that works for them. Part of our agreement for remote work and telework is to take into account work-life balance. And we're still functioning in a world where schools get closed or other situations in their lives get impacted by COVID. So we are hoping that these tools are things that people are going to be able to use in the short term. And we'll just have to see how it plays out in the long term. We have talked about this to some degree, of course, the future of work and what it's going to look like. What ultimately does AFGE see as the future of work here in terms of the EPA workforce? I think we're going to continue to be the highly trained professionals that we've always been and that uh, it would be my hope that the workforce would increase by sufficient amounts, and that would be significant numbers, to address the 
challenges uh, that have been added to our portfolio, including, you know, dealing with climate adaptation and climate change. So in terms of the future of work, I think it's all positive in terms of the, like I said, the flexibility and how nimble and how able they are to adjust to our environment and maintain uh, the high standard of work that we perform. Joyce Howell, AFGE Council 238's Chief Negotiator for the Future of Work, and also you heard from Bethany Dreyfus, the president of AFGE Local 1236, both representing EPA employees, both speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but I quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. 
How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us, um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, And I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Anyone else have trouble sleeping last night and the night before that? Same. And I've tried everything, but it either doesn't help me sleep so I'm cranky and tired the next day. Or I sleep, and then I'm drowsy the next day. Luckily, Seize the Night and Day is here. Go to SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more about insomnia and how you can seize the night. And Carpe the Diem. Make their mission your mission, because they will not rest until we all rest. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.